Let's open our Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy. Now today's, we've already said, is Reformation Sunday, which commemorates probably the greatest move of God's Spirit since the days of the Apostles. At the time, few would have suspected that the sound of Luther's hammer striking the nail, which put in the 95 Thesis, which was calling for a disputation, a discussion about these 95 things, as they heard that into the door of the church at Wittenberg, that they would have suspected it would have unleashed such a change upon the Western world. Now, his 95 Thesis provoked a debate which culminated in what we now call the Protestant Reformation. This is why we are here. Protestants coming from the word protest. Okay, We protested against what was going on there. Now, his action was not one of vandalism, but was normal. That's what you did. When you wanted to have a discussion about theological topics, you went to the front door of the church, and you put on the front door those topics that you wanted to to discuss and debate. So due to the controversial nature of some of his uh, debating points, um, which were handwritten, he had them redone in Latin, which was the academic language of the day, so that the academics were ready to deal with his 95 points. And later on, uh, a year and, and probably over the next two years, they were reprinted some 22 times in German so that the regular people could understand it. Okay? Now, if you go back, um, you have to go back to 2000. And there were lists of the greatest inventions of the previous 2,000 years. And the greatest invention of the first 2,000 years was what? The printing press. The movable type printing press. And, you know, it, we say, oh, it just happened this way. No, in God's providence... Gutenberg was not far before Luther and Calvin and the rest of the Reformers, which enabled the Word of God to go from something that was simply in the academic language to the language of the people. Now, the Reformation, and this is just a brief history, the Reformation also had uh, political aspects to it. The German princes saw what was going on in Luther and in Calvin, and they didn't like the the Holy Roman Empire, and they didn't like the chains and and the expectations that were associated with that. So they kind of also pushed the Reformation theology. Um, We're glad that they did, because they wanted economic freedom and they wanted political freedom from the domination of Rome at that day. So all these factors came together to really produce what is known as the Reformation. Now, Luther was a law student turned Augustinian monk who became the center of this controversy. And his theses were copied and his works were copied and sent out throughout Europe. And because so few of the people understood the great theological arguments, much of the theology of the Reformation came in what form? The hymnal, okay, songs. This will be on the test to get into heaven along with the two dates from Sunday school. Okay, how many verses are there to Mighty Fortress? 17? 18? 
I mean, it goes on and on. Look it up when you get home today and and see all the verses. And and they would sing them, stand up and sing them, okay, on and on and on. And that's how this Reformation theology was communicated. Now, there's only four in our hymnal, because how many of you would stand there and sing 16 of them? (laughs) See, the the hymnal writers were were smart, okay? Um, Well, Luther's study of scripture. Luther was going through this this trauma and he didn't understand what to do. So he went to his mentor and his mentor in famous words that changed history said, well, why don't you read Romans? Okay. Oh, oh. And he did. And you know what he came up with? The justification is by grace, grace alone through faith alone. Now that's not a new concept. It is plainly in there, but it had kind of been put aside for works righteousness. So this understanding of justification is probably Luther's most significant contribution to Christian theology. Um, We cannot add anything to the work of Christ. Our works do not make it better. They do not make us purer. Our works are in response to God's grace through Christ imputed into our lives. We have no righteousness of our own. It is given to us. Therefore, our works are in response to that, in praise to that, and for God's glory. So Martin Luther's rediscovery of this truth led to a whole host of changes within the church and within society as well. As I said, he translated the Bible into German, put the word of God into people's hands. Today, scripture is available in almost every language enabling everyone to read it for themselves. He changed the Latin Mass and reformed it, put it into the common tongue so that people could understand what was going on in worship. He also recaptured what is so very important, what we call the priesthood of all believers, that the clergy is nothing... I am no closer to God than any of you. Okay, Now, I might stand up on a higher spot here in church and I might have the fancy dress on but when it comes to the work of Christ there's no difference between the two of us so the past few years on Reformation Sunday I've done something a little bit different I have preached somebody else's sermon okay because there's so many you think somebody else's sermon right isn't that against the law well if I tell you I preach somebody else's sermon then it's okay um because there are so many great and powerful sermons out there that are such, also such great literature. I mean, they're written in a way that we just don't write and speak today. And in the past, I've done Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I preached um, something from Charles Spurgeon and, and what it was he preached out in a field. Okay? Now this year, and it is by popular demand, I have to say this, this was a request I preach once again the most famous sermon ever preached in Pennsylvania. Now there are no sermon, you think, oh great, but, but it, it, <laughs> you didn't know it was such a hotbed of, of sermons, did you? Now there are no notes today because this, the, the, the author of this never wrote notes, he just wanted you to, to absorb it, absorb it. So let me tell you a little bit about the author. Clarence Edward Noble McCartney who, along with Princetonian theologian J. Gresham Machen, was one of the main leaders of the conservative side of the fundamentalist modernist controversy during the 1920s. McCartney and Machen waged a furious battle against the ultra-liberal Presbyterian pastor from New York, Harry Emerson, Henry Emer- Harry Emerson Fosdick. Okay? And eventually the denomination sided with Fosdick. 
okay? And the denomination, the Presbyterian denomination, has never recovered because they sided with the very theological liberals and forced out a large portion of the conservatives. So from 1914 until 1927, McCartney was the pastor of the Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where he first preached this sermon. In time, he began broadcasting his sermons on radio and eventually re- uh, got the reputation of being the best preacher in Philadelphia at that time. In 1927, McCartney moved to Pittsburgh and took up the pastorate of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh. Now, Pittsburgh and Allegheny County is the mecca of Presbyterianism in the country. There are more Presbyterian churches in western Pennsylvania per capita than any place else in the country. Okay, as much of those Scots all settled out in that area, apparently. And First Pres is kind of the pinnacle of the Presbyterian church in that area. Now, while he was there, he was there from 1927 until 1953. While he was there, he wrote over 20 books and 20 pamphlets. And every October, for 26 years, he preached this same sermon. He may tweak it a little bit for each year, but every year, the end of October, this was the sermon. So if you would, would you stand with me? And I'll read the passage from which this is taken. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come upon us, enliven our hearts, open our eyes so that we understand your word, so that it might be clear to us that we would understand what you call us to do today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Titius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas which, with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Prudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Clarence McCartney's Come Before Winter. Napoleon Bonaparte and the Apostle Paul may be the most renowned prisoners of history. 
One was in prison because the peace of the world demanded it. The other because he sought to give to men that peace which the world cannot give and which the world cannot take away. One had the recollection of cities and homes which had been wasted and devastated, and the other had the recollection of homes and cities and nations which had been blessed by his presence and cheered by his message. One had shed rivers of blood upon which to float his ambitions. The only blood the other has shed was that which came from his own body for the work and the sake of Christ. One could trace his path to glory by ghastly trails of the dead, which which stemmed and stretched from the Pyrenees to Moscow and from the pyramids to Mount Tabor. The other could trace his path to prison, death, and immortal glory by the hearts that he had loved and the souls that he had gathered into the kingdom of God. Napoleon once said, I love nobody, not even my own brothers. It is strange, therefore, at the end of his life on his rock prison in the South Atlantic, he said, I wonder if there is anyone in the world who really loves me. The Apostle Paul loved all men. His heart was the heart of the world. And from his lonely prison in Rome, he sent out messages which glow with love unquenchable and throb with a fadeless hope, that hope of Jesus Christ. Now, when a man enters the most difficult time in his life, he is fortunate if he has friends upon whom he can count to the utmost. Paul had three such friends. The first of these three, whose name needs no mention, was that one who would be the friend of every man, the friend who laid down his life for us all. The second was that man whose face is almost the first and almost the last we see in life, the physician. This friend Paul handed down to immortality with the imperishable title, Luke, the great physician. The third of these friends was the Lyconian youth Timothy, half Hebrew, half Greek, whom Paul affectionately called my son in the faith. When Paul had been stoned by the mob at Lystra and was dragged out of the city gates and left for dead, perhaps it was Timothy who, when the night had come and the prison mobs had subsided, went out of the city gates to search amidst the stones and the rubble to search for his beloved Paul. And putting his arm around the apostle's neck, wiped the bloodstains from his arm, wiped the bloodstains from his face, poured the cordial down his lips, and then took him to the house of his godly grandmother Lois or his godly mother Eunice. If you form a friendship in a shipwreck, you never forget the friend. The hammer of adversity welds human hearts into an indissoluble amalgamation. Paul and Timothy each had in the other a friend who was born for adversity. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter to his dearest of friends, whom he left in charge at the church at Ephesus. He tells Timothy that he wants him to come and be with him at Rome. He is to stop at Troas on his way and pick up the books and bring a cloak too, which Paul had entrusted to Crestus or to Carpus. This is the only robe that Paul possesses. It had been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, white with the snows of Galatia, yellow with the dust of the Ignatian Way, and crimson with the blood of the wounds for the sake of Christ. It was getting cold in Rome. For the summer was waning, and Paul wants his robe to keep him warm. But most of all, he wants Timothy to bring himself. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, he writes. And then just before the close of the book, he says, Come before winter. Come before winter. 
Well, why before winter? Well, because when winter set in, the season for navigation of the Mediterranean was closed and it was too dangerous for ships to venture out into sea. If Timothy waits until winter, he will have to wait until spring. And Paul has a premonition that he will not last through the winter. For he says, the time of my departure is at hand. We like to think that Timothy did not wait a single day. And after he received that letter from Paul, and, and he started at once to Troas, where he picked up the books and the old cloak from the house of Carpus, and then sailed past Samothrace to Neapolis, and then traveled by the Ignatian Way across the plains of Philippi, and through the Macedonia to the Adriatic, where he took ship to Brundisium, and then on the, the Appian Way all the way to Rome, where he found Paul in prison read to him from the Old Testament, wrote his last letters and walked with Paul to the place of execution near the pyramid at Cestius and saw him receive his crown of glory. Before winter or never. There are some things which will never be done unless they are done before winter. See, the winter will come and the winter will pass. And the flowers of the springtime will deck the breast of the earth and the graves of some of our opportunities, perhaps even the graves of some of our dearest friends. There are golden gates wide open on this autumn day, but next October they will be forever shut. There are tides of opportunity running now at the flood. Next October they will be at the ebb. There are voices speaking today which a year from now will be silent. It is before winter or never. And how quick the autumn passes. It is a perfect parable for all that fades. Tomorrow the rain will fall and the winds will blow and the trees will be stripped barren of their leaves. Therefore, every returning autumn brings home to me the sense of the preciousness of life's opportunities, their beauty, but also their brevity. It fills me with the desire to say not merely something about the way that leads to eternal life, but with the help of God, something which will move men to take the way of life now, today, come before winter. So let us listen to some of those voices which now are speaking so earnestly to us, which a year from now may be forever silent. The first is the voice which calls us to reformation. Now, your character can be amended and it can be improved, but not just at any time. There are favorable seasons. In the town of my boyhood, I delighted to watch on a winter's night the streams of molten metal writhing and twisting like lost spirits as they poured from the furnaces of the wire mill. Before the furnace door stood men in leather aprons with, with iron tongs in their hand, ready to seize the fiery coils and direct them into the molds. But if the iron was permitted to cool below a certain temperature, it would refuse the mold. There are times when life's metal, as it were, is molten and can be worked into any design desired. But if it is permitted to cool, it tends toward a state of fixation in which it is possible neither to do nor even to plan a good work. When the angel came down to stir the pool in Jerusalem, then was the time for the sick to jump in and be healed. There are moments when the pool of life is troubled by the angel of opportunity. Then if a man will, he can go down and be made whole. But if he waits until the waters are still, it will be too late. 
For too many a man there comes the hour when destiny knocks on his door and the angel waits to see whether he will obey or reject him. These are precious and critical moments in the history of our souls. In your life there may be that which you know to be wrong and know to be sinful. In his mercy God has awakened your conscience or has flooded your heart with a sudden wave of contrition and a sudden wave of sorrow. This is the hour of opportunity. Right now, the chains of evil habits can be broken, which if not broken today, they will bind us forever. Now is the moment to make those decisions which shall affect our destiny. You must come before winter. Now secondly, there's the voice of friendship and affection which calls to us. Now suppose that Timothy, when he received that letter from Paul asking him to come before winter, had said to himself, well, yes, I'll start out for Rome, but first I have to clear up some matters here at Ephesus. And then I need to go down to Miletus and ordain some elders there, and then over to Colossae to celebrate communion over there. When he has attended to these matters, he starts for Troas, and there inquires when he can get a ship which will carry him across the Mediterranean to Macedonia and on to Italy. And he is told that the season for navigation is over. And there are no vessels that will sail until springtime. And he says, what? No ships to Italy until April? But Paul has told me to come before winter. And all through that anxious winter, we can imagine Timothy reproaching himself that he did not go at once when he received Paul's letter and wondering how it fares with his beloved friend. When that first vessel sails in the springtime and Timothy is a passenger on it, I can see him landing at Neapolis and hurrying up to Rome. There he seeks out Paul's prison only to be laughed at by the guard. Then he goes to the house of Claudia or Mary and asks, where can he find Paul? And you can hear them say, are you Timothy? Don't you know that Paul was beheaded last December? And every time the jailer put the key in the door of his cell, Paul thought that it was you, his beloved son, come to see him. How Timothy must then have wished that he had come before winter. It's before winter or it is never. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. When they complained about that costly ointment that Mary, what they thought, wasted, on Jesus. They could have sold that off. He says, me you will not always have. And that is true of the friends that we love. We cannot name them now, but next winter we shall know their names. And with them, as far as our ministry is concerned, it is before winter or it is never. In the church cemetery at Haddington, England, one can read over the grave of Jane Welsh, the first of many pathetic and regretful tributes paid by Thomas Carlyle to his neglected wife. For 40 years, she was a true and loving helpmate of her husband, and by act and word worthily forwarded him as none else could in all things he did or attempted. She died in London on the 21st of April, 1866, suddenly snatched from him in the light of his life as if gone out. Now, it has been said that the saddest sentence in the English language is that sentence written by Carlyle himself in his diary, Oh, that I had you yet for five minutes by my side, that I could tell you all. Hear then, careless soul, 
you who are dealing with loved ones, as if you would have them always with you, these solemn words of warning from Carlisle. Cherish what is dearest while you have it near you, and wait not till it is far away. Blind and deaf that we are, O think, if thou yet loved anybody living, wait not till death comes upon them to think how much they mean to you when it is too late. Speak to them now of their worth and of your love for them. Speak to them now before winter comes. On one of the early occasions, McCartney writes, when I preached on this text in Philadelphia, there was present at the service a student at the Jefferson Medical College. When the service was over, that student went back to his room in Art Street, and while the text kept repeating itself in his mind, come before winter, come before winter, perhaps he thought to himself, I had better write a letter to my mother. And he sat down and wrote a letter such as a mother delights to receive from her son. He took that letter down to the street and dropped it in the mailbox and returned to his room. The next day, in the midst of his studies, a telegram was placed in his hand. Tearing it open, he read those words, Come home at once, your mother is dying. So he took the train that night for Pittsburgh, and then another train to the town near the farm where he was from. Arriving at that town, he was driven to the farm and hurrying up the stairs, found his mother still living and with a smile of recognition and satisfaction on her face, the smile which, if a man has seen once, he can never forget. Under her pillow was the letter he had written her after the Sunday night service. The next time he met me in Philadelphia, he said, I am glad you preached that sermon. Come before winter. Twice coming to the sleeping disciples whom he had asked to watch with him in the garden of Gethsemane, Christ awakened them and said with sad surprise, what, you could not watch with me for one hour? And when he came a third time and found them sleeping, he looked sadly down upon them and said, sleep on now and take your rest. One of those three, James, was the first of the twelve apostles to die for Christ and seal his fate with his heart's blood. Another, John, was to suffer imprisonment for the sake of Christ on the isle that was called Patmos. And Peter was to be crucified for the sake of Christ. But never again could those three sleeping disciples ever watch with Jesus in his hour of agony. That opportunity was forever gone. You say when you hear that a friend has gone, why? Well, it cannot be possible. I saw him only yesterday. Yes, you saw him yesterday, but you will never see him there again. You say you intended to do this thing or to speak this word of appreciation or encouragement or to show this act of kindness, but now the vacant chair and the empty place will speak to you with reproach which your heart can hardly endure. Speak those things now before winter. Then thirdly, the voice of Christ calls to us. It is more eager and more tender than any other voice that we hear calling unto us. Come before winter. I wish I had been there when Christ had called his disciples, Andrew and Peter and James and John, by the Sea of Galilee. There must have been a note of love and authority and immediacy and urgency in his voice. For we read, they left all and followed him. And the greatest subject which can engage the mind and attention of man is eternal life. Hence, the Holy Spirit, which invites men to come to Christ, never says tomorrow, but always today. 
If you can find me one place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit says, believe in Christ tomorrow or repent and be saved tomorrow, I will come down out of this pulpit and stay out of it, for there is no gospel to preach. But the Spirit always calls us today. He never calls us to believe tomorrow. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Come now before winter. The reason for this urgency is twofold. First, the uncertainty of human life. A long time ago, David, in his last interview with Jonathan, said, As my soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. That is true of every one of us but a single step. An old rabbi used to say to his people, repent the day before you die. But they said to him, Rabbi, we don't know the day of our death. So he would say, then repent today. Then repent today. Come before winter. The second reason why Christ, when he calls a man, always says today and never tomorrow, is that tomorrow the disposition of a man's heart may have changed. There's a time to plant, there's a time to reap. The heart, like soil, has its favorable seasons. Speak to my brother now. His heart is tender, a man once said to me concerning his brother, who was not a believer. Today a man may hear this sermon and be interested and impressed and almost persuaded, ready to take a stand for Christ and enter into eternal life. But he postpones his decision and says, well, not this morning, but tomorrow. A week goes by, a month goes by, a year goes by, and he may come back and hear the same call to repentance and to faith, but it has absolutely no effect upon him, for his heart is as cold as marble, and the preacher might as well preach the stone or to scatter the seed on the pavement. Oh, if the story of this church could be told, if the stones should cry out of the wall and the beams from the timber should answer, what a story they could tell of those who once were almost persuaded, but now who are far from the kingdom. Christ said today, and they answered tomorrow. So once again, I repeat the words of the apostle, come before winter. And as I pronounce them, common sense experience, conscience, scripture, the Holy Spirit, the souls of just men made perfect, and the Lord Jesus Christ all repeat with me, come before winter. Come before the haze of Indian summer has faded from the fields. Come before the November wind strips the leaves from the trees and sends them whirling over the fields. Come before the snow lies upon the uplands and the meadows and the brooks are turned to ice. Come before the heart is cold. Come before desire has failed. Come before life is over and your probation ended and you stand before God to give an account of the use you have made of the opportunities which in His grace He has granted to you. Come before winter. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Let us pray. Lord, the call is clear. It is not tomorrow that we are to believe. It is not tomorrow that we are to seek out your face. It is today. It is this moment. You have brought us here at this moment in time that we might hear the things of Christ. That our hearts might be so convicted that we are simply compelled by the Holy Spirit to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. To receive him as our Lord and Savior. 
to confess our sin and to receive the salvation and the forgiveness that he has and that can be only found in him. Lord, don't let a single one of us walk out of here today and think, that was good. I'm going to think about that. In fact, I might call Randy tomorrow and talk about that. Move in our hearts today that we would believe today that if there is an association that we need to repair, if there is someone that we need to speak words of love and appreciation to, we would do it today and not tomorrow. We would pick up the phone. We would pick up a pen. We would go to their homes and say how much we love them and care for them and not wait until tomorrow. For tomorrow may be too long, but today to speak the words of kindness and to speak the words of love Let us today look at our own hearts, Lord, and see what needs reformation in our own lives. What are those old habits that we must discard? We do it today. We don't wait till tomorrow. For our hearts will not be moved tomorrow. They're moved but today. Lord, Jesus calls to us today to believe upon him and to receive his grace And to know a joy that we do not know in this world. To know a peace that cannot be found in this world. To release the burdens that we have borne on ourselves and place them upon him. And he will take them gladly for us. That we will spend eternity safe in the palm of his hand and his care. And nothing can take us from them. We need fear no man and no thing. For we belong to him. That is the call today. Do not let us leave today, Lord without a profession of Christ on our hearts and on our lips. Come before winter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.